Good morning. Do you have your Bibles open? Genesis chapter 8. But I want to begin, as many of you know already, but this has been a very difficult week for us as a church. Actually, it's been a little more than a week. My longtime friend and our friends, but Karen Moore, um, and I know she was my friend because she laughed at my jokes. Uh, she suffered a long battle with depression, many years with that, and then as it went on, she went deeper and deeper in these feelings of hopelessness, and it just proved to be more than she could overcome. And so, as my wife Charlotte said, when someone takes their own life, there's no place to put it emotionally. And so, we're left with questions there really are not answers for. So... Um, the comfort we have is in knowing that she is with the Lord Jesus, and she loved the Lord. The Lord died for her, and she knew him for many, many years. And so if you need to talk about this or this whole area, in fact, uh, Wednesday night we had a panel of answering tough questions with our youth. It was a tremendous time. And what our kids are facing now in this world are absolutely beyond belief as far as these, these issues of, of life and what the devil wants to do, and all those kinds of things. So if you have any questions, or we want to be, and again, what happens to these kinds of things, and particularly this for me personally and my wife, and, and, and Jim and Christian Eleanor here, so it's, uh, you know, we're going to be with you as we pray it through. Um, her memorial will be a week from Saturday at 10 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel, and they've been coming for 20-plus years. We've gone on vacations together, and we're just very close, and so... Um, if you need to talk about that or want to pray in any way, uh, we, what I was saying is it surfaces. When these kinds of tragedies happen, these kinds of, it just surfaces where you realize there's, there's things that we want to be better about. We want to be in place. And so uh, we just want to be the church. And we're, Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted, set at liberty those that are captive, and so many scriptures come to mind. So Jim, Christian, his fiance Eleanor here this morning, so if you want to come up and, and just um, give them a hug, I'm sure they'd appreciate that. And um, Anyway, we're praying for you guys, so um, please. In fact, I, I wrote here, so Karen, you love the Word of God and you love to worship God, so I'm dedicating our time together today in worship in the Word to you, my dear sister in the Lord. We are gonna. We miss you. We're gonna miss you tremendously. So, I want to do that together this morning. She loved the word and she loved to worship. And so, uh, if you would please stand and let's stand in honor of the word of God. And then this morning, in dedicating just our prayers to the Moore family. And we're in Genesis chapter nine, but we're gonna really be looking more in chapter eight and running up into nine this morning. And then nine, ten kind of overlaps into chapter 11. I'll talk about that in a minute. But in Genesis chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 13. Genesis 8, 13. It came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, 
birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Verse 1 of chapter 9. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Lord, we bring our hearts before you, our lives before you as we stand together. Lord, we know that we can't leave your presence. Where are we going to go? You're everywhere. But Lord, we want to be honoring in our hearts and minds right now you and your desire to speak to us from your word. Living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, you can show us, and that's what the psalm said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxiety. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So Lord, I would offer our prayers to you for, for Jim and Christian and Cole and Allie and Addie. And Lord, those in the close proximity, family-wise and friends, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, even now, you'd strengthen them with might, you'd comfort them, that we would be able to comfort them. And God, that you'd be, you would be the one that is so present in their uh, lives right now. But then, Lord, Lord, also, as we open the word, I know Karen would even say, let's get into the word. Let's get into the word. Let's learn, Lord, and hear from you. So please speak to us. We're hungry, Lord. Feed us. The things I prepared, break them fresh for this time right now as we go through these, this chapter in Genesis. Your word, bless it, Lord, break it. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You can be seated. So we're looking in Genesis. This, this series is in chapters 1 through 11. We'll pick up Genesis again uh, in a couple months. But in Genesis 1 through 11, you have four events. Starts with the creation in, Ge- in Genesis 1 and 2. You have the fall in Genesis 3 and 4. We're in this section of the flood, which is chapters 5 through 10, and then the nations, and we'll look at that next week. And and chapter 10 really overlaps between the two, so we'll get to that a little bit today, but we'll hit more on it next week. So in Genesis 5, 6, we looked at before the flood, and the whole theme on that message was walk with God. And so as we look at what the world had come to, and God said, I'm going to destroy the earth, there were two exceptions And one was Enoch that God took because he walked with God and God took him. The other was Noah who walked with God and he was the one that built the ark. So those two exceptions are what we find before the flood, but the two exceptions, they were the two that were walking with God. And brothers and sisters, we need to walk with the Lord. We need to walk with God. And when I think of walking, it's one step at a time. You ever try to take two? <laughs> That's when you start running. I say walk with the Lord just in a, in, a, in a manner that you can keep pace with him. We don't want to be behind him. We don't want to be ahead of him, but we want to walk with him. And he desires to walk with us. And then in the flood, we looked at this, wait with God, that God is with us. In fact, God invited Noah into the ark, come into the ark. And then once he came in, God shut him in. So God was with them in the ark. And no matter what the storms may be of life, God is not absent. He's with us. 
there. He provides for us, protects us, and sees us through it. So Noah with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives went into the ark. And when they got into the ark, they what? They waited and they waited and they waited. That's what they did for 370 days, maybe one, depending on how you want to add it up. Until, as we read this morning, the earth was dried, and then we went, we're going now to after the flood, and the simple thing here is God is with you. God hasn't left. He was in the ark, and he's with Noah here and with us after the flood. He's still there, as we'll look at in a moment. So I want to hit a little bit as a first point, a little synopsis, a little outline of these chapters in Genesis, particularly chapters 8 through 12. In chapter 8, it was Noah, his wife, his sons, and his son's wives. So God said in verse 16 of chapter 8, go out of the ark, all of you, with you. And then in chapter 8, 18, Noah went out with his sons and his son's wives. So the focus there is on Noah with his wife, sons, and his son's wives. Chapter 8. Chapter 9. Noah and his sons, now, with no mention of wives and wife and wives. So chapter 9, verse 18 the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, we'll get this next week. Why focusing on Canaan? We'll look at this next week with the table of nations. But notice in chapter 9 and verse 28, and Noah lived, again, after the flood, 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So again, after the flood is what we're looking at. In Genesis chapter 10, you have the genealogy of the sons of Noah and their sons, or his grandsons, and on down the line. And so in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and sons were born to them, again, after the flood. So this is all happening now after this whole cataclysmic judgment of the earth. And then in chapter 10, and verse 32, we get this phrase that's often repeated, these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And we'll get to the table of nations and the Tower of Babel in our next study. Now in Genesis chapter 11, you have in the first nine verses the Tower of Babel, and the term that's used there are the sons of men. In chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, now it brings us back to another genealogy, but this one specifically the genealogy of Shem. So notice in verse 10, this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begat Aphrax two years after the flood. So Shem is the line now that's going to be followed, and the others are going to be eventually fade away because it's through Shem that we get the genealogy that comes through Abraham that becomes where Jesus was born. So the Bible's following that genealogy. So look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. The genealogy of Terah, who begot Abram. And then we get to chapter 12 and verse 1. Then now the Lord said to Abram, let's read it. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, it's pointing prophetically forward to the Messiah coming through the lineage of Abraham. He is what? The father of our faith. So spiritually, Abraham is our father. But physically and genealogically, it was through, through the seed of Abraham and then down through the promises to Abraham that Jesus came and delivered us from our sin. Can you hear an amen? So here's, the, here's my point, just to start out. 
after the flood, God was moving ahead with his plan for the redemption of mankind from the fall, from death, and from the curse came through sin. In other words, God was not done. If God was done, he would never have called Noah to build an ark. He would have just wiped out the whole thing. But God was not done. His plan was moving forward now after the flood. So Job said this. We just studied Job. I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall dwell at last on the earth. Now Job had this flash of revelation. I know that my Redeemer, I know a Redeemer is coming. Job had that revelation in his heart. Now, God called Abraham, but then he also called Moses to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. And so we read in Exodus chapter 6, God saying to Moses, Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. God saying, I'm going to do this for you. Now, why did God do that? Let me clarify what God said. In the song of Moses, he said, You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. So God did this thing called redemption. He redeemed these people that he had chosen through Abraham, delivered them from the bondage of Egypt as a picture for us, but also in reality and historically, he redeemed them. But it says there, in his mercy. Can I hear an amen? He did not give them what they deserved. Now, you read the history of Israel and you say, yeah, they deserved a lot, but be careful on that because look at your own history. Can I hear an amen? Look at your own history. How God deals with us is not because we deserve such great things because we're such wonderful people. We have a wonderful, merciful, redeeming God. And he has not done yet his plan of redemption. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you to Israel and to us, or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. Now, you don't like when some of them, you know, you're just nothing. <laughs> you're the least. But that's not why God delivered them, because they're some great, wonderful people. He said, he set his love on you. Not, he didn't choose you because you were more in number or great, but because the Lord loves you and because you would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Egypt. I love what it says there. It says, because the Lord loves you, because he would keep the oath to you. It says there, the Lord loves you and he put his love on you. And let me say this very simply. The Lord wants to love on you. That's what he wants to do. Now, we hear that so often. God loves you. God loves you. Let me say to you again, God loves you. And let me say, if it was me, you wouldn't deserve it. But then I have to look in the mirror every time. He loves you. And he's not done with you yet. And sometimes the, the most poignant moments in life Or when you go through the storms, you don't know what to do. And after them, you find out, God's with me. 
And he is the answer when there are no answers. And if there's one answer we need to hear over and over and over again is God loves you. And he's not done with you yet. He redeemed you and you didn't give him a penny for it. That's our God. That's our Redeemer. And that's what he calls himself. He is our Redeemer. He told Israel all the time, I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Redeemer. To Judah in danger of judgment from the Assyrians, he said, fear not, you worm, Jacob. Now, I don't like being called a worm, and you don't either. But comparatively to the, to the mercies of God and the love of God, if you really stop and think, you say, man, who am I? What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man, you should say your heart on him. What? Who am I? Just a worm. You men of Israel, I will help you. And how often have you said, Lord, help me. Simon Peter gets out of the boat and immediately starts to sink. He says, Lord, help, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him as he's going down. How many of you have had the immediates of God taking you as you're sinking? Help! He said to Israel, I will help you. Jesus said, when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And let me tell you, the Holy Spirit loves to tell us, God's not done. God's not done. And the Holy Spirit whispers to us all the time, God's not done yet. God's not done yet. Says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. That's what he says to us. Isaiah 54, verse 5, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He, call, he is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says the Lord. It's the rejection that a woman would feel the depths of that when her husband rejects her. Think on that a moment. That's what God said. That's how I saw you. That was what was going on. That was the pain. For a mere moment, I have forsaken you, but with great mercies, I will gather you. And there is those times when there is a need for God to chasten us, and it's not fun. For God to do what he needs to do to get our attention, and it's not fun. But all the while, he sees the pain. He knows the hurt. He says, this is how I saw you, like a woman forsaken, a young wife and her husband's forsaken her. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord. Listen, your Redeemer. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glories which shall be revealed in us. While we don't look at things that are seen, because the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are what? Eternal. The Christian, by faith, doesn't see less. We see more because we see the Redeemer, Holy One of Israel, our helper in times of trouble, the one who's not done. We see Him in Christ. For this, for this, listen to what Isaiah says, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. 
For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart, the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Like the waters of Noah. And we're going to see God made a promise. And Hebrews tells not only did he promise it, he swore it. By two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to find hope within the veil. Can I say, yeah. God not only promised it, he swore it. Did God have to do that? No. He did it because he loves us. He wants us to know he loves us. He wants us to know us as a redeemer. He wants us to know, I'm not done yet. I'm not done. God did not stop his work until the redemption was done. Jesus came, died, and rose again, our Redeemer, Savior, and Holy God, to finish the work of our forgiveness. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, Not with the blood of goats and calves, with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. Jesus and his blood. Jesus came to redeem us all because God loves us and not because we deserve it. Jesus came to bring us out, rescue us, and redeem us from the bondage of sin. Jesus came to help us with great mercies and everlasting kindness. It's no wonder we sing, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest ray, but wholly lean on Jesus. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. He's not done. He is not done. Are you not thankful for that? He who began the good work and you will complete it until he's done. <laughs> until the day of redemption. Jesus came with mercy to lead us and guide us to the truth that sets us free. And I'm not talking once. I'm talking throughout life. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A slave can't free himself. He's a slave. But the son can set us free. He owns it all. It's all his. Jesus came with salvation, sanctification, and the hope of glory. And so Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And so will the glory be to Jesus on that day, centered and enthroned on high. That's what we're going. God's not done. God's not done. God will not stop until his work of redemption in you is complete. He won't stop. He wants you to know he's not done. After the flood, after whatever you might go through and be going through, God is still working his work of love and redemption and transformation. So we're not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians 1.7. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, 
You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Until that's all done. He's not done with you yet. Wow. It's so incredible. After the flood, God's with you because he's not done yet. One day we'll be with him in glory. Even there, he won't be done yet. You know, we're not going to get to heaven, into the kingdom, and we're going to, you know, sort of get on our harps. And to me, that's totally boring. That's not what's happening. We are being prepared for a kingdom. God creates in his image to work and to rest. And there's coming a time, and we're being prepared for that. This life matters in preparing us for the life that's coming in Christ. Oh, I'm getting too excited here. So here's what I would say. God is not done in us. Let us not be either. Let us press on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us. Philippians says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's not done. Philippians says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of what pleases him. So there's this partnership that's going on. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God wants to work in you. So Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. And it's interesting when Jesus in those last few chapters in John, whenever he talks about the word and joy, it's coupled with the commandments. So you read about the commandments, keep my commandments. It says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy remain in you and your joy may be full. See, it transcends all the philosophical kinds of things of the world, all the worlds, and says, no, here's where joy comes from, obedience in relationship to God. And so he's working and I have to work with him. I have to yield my members as instruments of of righteousness toward holiness. I have to yield myself to the Spirit of God. I believe firmly, I believe this, it was my own experience in some, to some degree, that when we are born again by the Spirit of God and become Christians, what we need but sometimes never get is an understanding of how does this life work. I will tell you, we have a manual. It's called our Bibles. Romans is a critical, it's called the fifth gospel. It comes right after the book of Acts. Romans is a critical book in understanding how does this thing called salvation work? How does the gospel work in my life? And by the way, the gospel is for believers throughout life. And so we have a new relationship to sin now, a new relationship to the law. We have the life of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that sets me free from the law of sin and death. And it's not say, what Paul's pointing out there. It's not that this thing called sin and all those things that so plague us goes away. It doesn't go away. Can I hear an amen? Paul said, you know, that which I hate, I'm practicing. <laughs> How many say amen to that? You probably don't want to say that. Okay, you don't have to say it. Okay. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing them. What I hate, I'm practicing. He says, what's my problem? 
<laughs> I mean, he's battling this out in Romans 7. What's going on here? And you know what he comes to, this conclusion? Oh, wretched man that I am. With my mind, I serve the law of God. I want to please God. I want to walk with God. I want to know freedom from sin. I want to know power of sin. I want to know how to walk in the Spirit. I find this law in my mind. With my mind, I serve the law of God. God knows, listen, God knows your desire to walk with Him. He knows your desire to please Him. He knows your desire to live your life in such a way that through your life there's a light shining. There's salt that's being rubbed in to preserve someone's life. He knows all those desires. Chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he sees that. And I see that. Paul arrived at that. He understood this principle that there's a law. With my mind, I serve the law of God. But with my flesh. Now, how many of you have a flesh? I don't see any hands. You're all flesh. <laughs> this thing called the flesh. I serve the law of sin. That's what happens. And so there's this battle going on. And so I believe that as a person gets born again, if they can be fed and taught and trained and equipped to understand how this thing works, it's not saying, okay, I got the information. I got that, you know, I got an A, a grade A on that class. I know what it says in Romans. Obedience is the application by faith of operating in a whole new realm of existence. The law of the Spirit sets me free from the law of sin and death. There's a higher law. It's not these other laws don't exist, the law of sin, but there's a higher law of the life of the Spirit and life in Christ Jesus. I have, this is, none of this is on my notes, but I'm having fun. God's not done, but a huge need that we all have is to understand the principles of what it means to be a believer filled with the Spirit and how do I walk in the Spirit. So Paul gets into all that in Romans. We got to yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness to God and not yield ourselves to sin and all those choices that we're making. God wants to help us. One of my points this morning, if I ever get to them, <laughs> is our need for the power of the Holy Spirit, understanding all these things. But then, you know, none of, here's what I, I believe I'm right on. I'm true. A one-year-old Christian is not 10 years old. That's profound, I know. You're probably still thinking about it. In other words, we are all growing up in our faith. Now, as we give more attention to the things of God, we're going to grow up and be maturing quicker, which is true in any realm. But there's a need we have to grow up as dear children desire the pure milk of the word. We just need to be growing up in these things of Christ and learning them. But the, the, the actual learning happens in obedience. Application. Doing the things and, and those choices that I make. And let me tell you something else that's been striking me lately. More poignantly than ever probably. That this battle that we're battling, I've shared this often, is a battle of the mind. So Paul said in writing Romans, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice Holy, accept, and I think when you, get, when you get, give someone a body, you got you. <laughs> a living, holy, acceptable, which is a reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, 
the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting out every thought and imagination that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. And bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience once your obedience is fulfilled. What takes us past disobedience? Obedience. It's these choices that we're growing up in. But let me come back to that first thought. God knows our desire to please Him and to walk with Him and to start our day in fellowship with Him. He knows those desires. And now what He's doing is He's working in us to will and do what please. And that working out of that is our responsibility to be in partnering with God in obeying, learning, and walking with Him step by step. Not getting in front of Him, not getting behind Him, but keeping step with this Holy Spirit of God who's working our lives to do these things that are a blessing to God. So I'm running out of time, but I, I appreciate being able to just share some of these things on my heart with you. Brothers and sisters, God is not against us. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who? Well, I can. (laughs) Often. Friends can. Enemies sure are. The devil can. But God is for me. And all the forces aligned against me in all the universe are no match for God, the creator of all of it. So if God is for me, who can be against me? Now, how do I know that? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how freely, how shall he not with him give us all things? So there are three things. How does this happen? Number one, as Noah did, build an altar to the Lord. Partner with God. He's not done with you. He's working out. Build an altar to the Lord. Like Noah did. The first thing Noah did when he came out of the ark. Now, let me say, his family was with him in the ark. Eight souls total. They saw him building the ark. Now, I'm I'm assuming his son-in-laws helped him. (laughs) But for a hundred plus years, what's he doing? He's building an ark. Why was he building the ark? Because he believed God. He was moved with godly fear. Hebrews 7 tells us. Moved with godly fear. Prepared an ark for what? The saving of his household. So he built that ark. And and what were they seeing? They were seeing his faith in believing God. They were seeing Noah's, Noah's godly fear. They were seeing his righteous living. They were hearing his righteous preaching. All this before the flood. Watching him build that ark. Why? He believed God. And we talked about that. How when I believe God, it changes how I live my life. Now Noah was found, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This had been going on for hundreds of years. Noah's relationship with God. And because of his faith in preparing the ark, after the flood, eight souls were saved. And now the very first thing that, they, that his family sees him do when they get out of the ark is build an altar to the Lord. He said, the first thing necessary right now, yes, it's out, the first thing I need to do is I need to build an altar where I can meet with God and worship God and thank God and pray to God and if need be, confess my sins to God and receive forgiveness. I need an altar where I can meet with God. Now, the interesting thing about this is there's no commandment from God. Noah, you build me an altar. I'll tell you why, I believe. There was already an altar in his heart for God. 
That's the altar we're talking about. It's the altar of our heart before God. And Noah, no, what Noah sacrificed was what God provided for him. God provides the sacrifice. His name is Jesus. Offered up for us. That we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time. Because we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Hebrews. You with me? And Noah offers that burnt offering sacrifice. And the burnt offering was a picture of the whole life consecrated to God. So I look at this altar in my heart. Is my heart fully consecrated to God? How does that happen? An altar is where I pray. An altar is where I thank God. An altar is where I receive mercy. An altar is where there's grace. An altar is where I, I, I sort of take on, as Moses did, the Shekinah, if you will, the glory. It's where I leave and my life is changed because I've been meeting with God. I've had time with God. I'm worshiping God. Build an altar to the Lord. Have a place where you're meeting with God and there you're praising and thanking him. There you're praying to him. There you're confessing to him. There you're receiving from him. There you're going out and saying, Lord, I'm going to live today. Just today, I'm going to live it for you. That's the altar we need in our hearts. Where we meet with God and we worship God. There's something that's been striking me lately in John chapter 13. Because what it says here is, says, verse 21, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said, listen, in his heart, in his heart, Noah at that altar was seeing the heart of God. And I thought of John the apostle on that night that Jesus was betrayed. It says that Jesus, after he said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. Disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. Interesting to me. Then Simon Peter, seeing John, doesn't name John because John wrote the gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, leaning on his bosom. Simon Peter said to him, motioned to him, ask, who, who is he talking about? Who's going to betray him? Then it says, John leaning back on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? I'm just thinking, at that moment, John the Apostle is hearing the physical heartbeat of God. But more than physical, in three plus years, John saw the heart of God in his love for him. That's what he saw. That's what he heard. As I have loved you, you go and love others. And I'm just thinking on this for a moment. Then John stands at the cross. And there by the cross was Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. They're standing there, Jesus on the cross. Therefore, Jesus, seeing his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And to the 
that disciple said, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. John became the, the follow-up from Jesus for his mother. And then they crucif- he's crucified, he's hanging, and then he fulfills the scripture. He says it is finished and bows his head and gives up his spirit. And so the bodies wouldn't remain on the cross because it was a Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate, hey, can we, take, can we break their legs so they die and take them down because we don't want the bodies up there on the, on the Sabbath. The soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And there's John standing, hearing the heartbeat at the Last Supper. And just hours later, he's watching his Savior and the one who loved him dying and his heartbeat is stopped. Killed. And I have to imagine in his heart, he's going, what? what was, what's, that, what's going on? The one who loved me so much. The one who walked and talked and lived it. And ha- I thought he was, you know, like they said in Road to Emmaus, we thought this was one who was going to deliver us. And John there with Mary. The heart pierced, killed. But little did they know, because Jesus told them, in just three days, and they must have been the longest three days of anyone's life, he would raise, rise from the dead. He said, you know, the world will rejoice, but you will sorrow. Because I'm going to see you again. And when you see me again, you're going to rejoice, and no one's going to take your joy from you. You see, Jesus leading him down this, his disciples and teaching them and instructing them, showing them the heart of God and his love for them and the redemption he was bringing for them. They had little understanding of what that would require. But let me say, the only one that would pay that price, the only one who could pay the price, is the eternal God himself. For you and for me, build an altar to the Lord. Visit it often, where there you pour out your praise and thanksgiving and prayers and all that to the Lord, and your heart begins to hear in a clearer way, in a clearer way, how much God beats his heart for you. Build an altar to the Lord. Real quickly. Be blessed and be a blessing. That's what Christians are. We are blessed to be a blessing, even as we read about Abraham. That's that's what a Christian is. And it says there in chapter 9, God bless Noah and his sons. Be blessed and be be a blessing. And so the first part, one through seven, is as for you, be blessed and be a blessing. That's our part in this, working it out. As for you, I'm reading a book called Subversive Sabbath. I'm 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 going to do a little study on on the Sabbath uh, in a couple weeks. And I'm being so um, drawn to understanding this thing called Sabbath. And one of the books I'm on now is called Subversive Sabbath by A.J. Swoboda. And he wrote this quote, God, it turns out, continues blessing the cosmos, the critters, (laughs) and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob throughout Scripture. 
Indeed, God is a blessing God. What is pivotal here is that delighting is that God's default relationship to all of the creation is not that of some mean-spirited deity delighting in withholding love, mercy, and blessing. God's love, as John later, John later reflects, is lavished on us, 1 John 3, 1. God's divine posture is not primarily one of curse. Rather, God's posture toward his world is one of relentless, generous blessing. God desires to bless the whole world, not just his people. We are to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. As we're working this thing out, we want to be a blessing. In other words, what I look at is we want to be an addition, not a subtraction in people's lives. A lot of ways that that can happen. Now, an interesting um, thing we read here in chapter 9 also, it says, verse 4, you shall not eat flesh while with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. Notice, from the hand of every beast I'll require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I'll require the life of a man, of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So here's another, a couple verses here on we're accountable. There's an accountability to God that's woven right into this passage to Noah. So the accountability to God is both man and beast. Now, I don't understand this. But when a person takes the life of an animal, or an animal takes the life of a person, God says they're accountable to me. So even the beast. Now, I don't know how that works, but that's what God said. Now, we get into this thing that we've talked about. I'm not going to spend much time here at all, but capital punishment. I don't know what you think about that. I hope you've scripturally researched it. That's the most important thing that you can do. But capital punishment, which is the, le the le legally authorized killing of someone as punishment for a crime. It's capital punishment. And that's what God said right here. So there's an this is an accountability to God issue. That's what it is. Bottom line. When a person takes the life of another person, premeditated murder... God has ordained capital punishment. That's how I read that. And I don't know how you can read it differently. It's plain, pretty simple. But here's what we need to understand. That this needs to be done with the clearest measure of witness and evidence. If not, we don't do that. That's what God said. So be a blessing and be blessed. Now, then God said, as for you, there's the deal. But as for me, love it. Verses 8 through 17. As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you. Now, he didn't say, I'm going to. He said, I established my covenant with you. You're it, Noah, and my covenant I'm establishing with, with you. Now, for us, a new covenant has been established in Jesus. Can I hear an amen? We come through this new covenant that God himself made with us. It's that by faith we will confess to you that we will be saved. This new covenant is not keeping laws and working out in that sense it's working out my faith in trusting what God has accomplished for me in the new covenant. So on that night when he was betrayed, he said, this is the blood of a new covenant. The old covenant, Hebrews talks a lot about this, and the new covenant. So he said, I'm going to establish my covenant, that new covenant, Jesus at the Last Supper. Then he said, this is the sign of the covenant. Now, what would be the sign of the new covenant? It's very simple. It's the cross. It's the cross. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given except the sign 
of, of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Why was Jesus in the heart? Because he was crucified on a cross. The sign of this new covenant is the cross. It's the cross. And then he said, I'll remember the everlasting covenant. And how do we do that? Through communion. Through communion. And Jesus said, often you take the bread and drink the cup, you do show his death until he comes. And whenever we take communion, I love the picture. We show his death. We're looking back at what Jesus accomplished. Until he comes, we're looking forward to Jesus coming. And now here we are remembering him. Like he said, do this in remembrance of me. We can do no better than remembering Jesus. All the time, in every place. And the final thought, and we'll close here and I'll pray. You need to be filled with the Spirit. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, part of our, what's been given to us is the third person of the Godhead. And Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So Noah, this first attempt at farming and vineyarding didn't come out so well. Now, why did, why did he get so drunk? Some, some believe that before the flood, there was no fermentation. And so he made this vineyard. Now, he had been a carpenter for a long time. He's building an ark. Now, it says he began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And then he got so drunk, passed out naked, his son Ham mocks it, tells his two brothers, Japheth and Shem, hey, come here. And they would not do that. They backed in, covered their father's nakedness. But what we read in Ephesians ties into this so well. Paul said, do not be drunk with wine, in which is excess. We're going to talk more about this next week. I think we need to. Do not be drunk with wine, but be, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. What's controlling your life? What are you living for? What's coming out? What's coming in is going to matter. What's coming out? And we need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That in Ephesians there, 5.18, it's in the continuous present tense. Be, be, being filled with the Spirit. So, I would choose rather to be pressing on with God and failing, much like Noah did, than to be going, and there's a contrast here because it says of Nimrod, he began to be, as Noah began to be a farmer, Nimrod began to be a mighty one before the Lord. That's, and we're going to find out that's not good because he in his arrogance and pride was in the, was, what was in the making was a rebel who led the earth in rebellion. I would rather fail be ashamed before God than to be pitted against him because of my pride and arrogance. God can deal with a humble, broken person. He can deal with our nakedness. He can deal with all that if we're with him. I would rather walk humbly with my God than proudly find success in a world without God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word and we pray Lord in Jesus name we bow our hearts before you in Jesus name and Lord the work that you began in us we pray you you continue to teach us and instruct us and Lord that we might walk with you and wait with you and know that you are with us 
through thick and thin. And so, Lord, we do. We come, as it were, to the altar. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you forgive us of all of our sin. We pray you'd cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would teach us all things and bring to remembrance whatsoever you've commanded us. And, Lord, that we might be responding to that in an obedient yieldedness to the things that we know are true and righteous and holy. And, Lord, that we put off the deeds of the flesh, that we crucify our affections and lusts, and that, Lord, we be being transformed by the renewing of our minds, that you'd conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we are so thankful that your mercies are new every morning, and we're not getting what we deserve, and then your grace lavished upon us in your love. By grace, we've been saved through faith in that, not of ourselves. By grace, we have access into this grace, and by faith, we have access into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Lord, on and on go your promises and your power and your word to us. So we receive together today your word and your truth, your encouragement, your exhortations, whatever it might be, Lord, please. And as our heads are bowed and you're praying, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, may I say to you, you're missing out. God created you to know him. And when you don't, you can still live life, but you're living it on a plane that God desires you to understand its limitations, but then also what happens without him. And you live in a fallen world and sin, and the wage of sin is death. Without Jesus Christ, there's no remission of sin, there's no forgiveness, but in him on the cross, dead, buried, risen again is the only hope that you have but it's the hope that God gives for you to be saved so I'm going to ask you just do three simple things number raise your hand and say yes I want to say yes to Jesus I want my sins forgiven I want to know today when I walk out of here that I've done the thing the obedience to God's word in asking him to forgive me of my sin and receive me as his child so number one raise up your hand second I'm going to ask you in raising that you stand is in standing up, you're just making a confession before people that Jesus said was super important. It's obedience is what it is. It's obedience to what you know is right. And when you make that stand for Jesus, it's at that moment only as you obey that you will then begin to experience the freedom that he gives to you because now he is walking with you. So it's important you stand up. Make your confession, and then I ask you to walk up to one of the tables where there'll be someone there to pray for you. So if that's you, as we're praying, that's you. It's the most important decision that you'll ever make. It's the most important thing we could do today is to give you an opportunity to raise your hand up and say, I want to get right with God today. I want to say yes to Jesus. And secondly, then to stand up and say, I'm going to make my trek these 20 feet or so, and there you're going to pray and offer your life to God, and he will receive you like you don't even have an idea in his love and grace and mercy for you. So one more moment, that's you. Just raise your hand up and say, yes, today's my day. I want to say yes to Jesus today. Let's stand together and do this last song and I'll come up and close this. Hi, I'm Kevin Day, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel South. I really hope you enjoyed the message and that God spoke to your heart through it. If you'd like to know more about our church and find other messages to watch, head over to CCSKent.com. 
www.ontheroad.org. And I would love to meet you at one of our Sunday services. God bless you.